Welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Patrick Kane. Dr. Kane and I are going to be discussing meniscus repairs in detail. So what is the difference between an all-inside versus an inside-out meniscus repair? When might a surgeon use one over the other? When might uh, outside-in technique be used? And so on that way. So we discuss a lot of the more intricate details of surgical repair and we also discuss some rehab applications as well. So really great episode, real deep dive into the meniscus. So this episode and every episode in season five is brought to you by ISOFIT, our go-to for all things isometric training. For more, you can check the description below. Enjoy. Dr. Kane, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today, man. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For people who might not be familiar with you or all the amazing stuff that you're doing down in Southern Delaware, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you, who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm an orthopedic sports medicine specialist down here um, by way of Vail, Colorado for fellowship and Rothman Institute and Jefferson for residency. Yeah, I guess this is a national broadcast or podcast. So we're in Rehoboth Beach or Lewis, Delaware. So tiny beach town. Um, but yeah, my practice even down here, though, is pretty much strictly uh, sports. So probably 60, 40 knee shoulder. So kind of a little bit more knee heavy. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're a small state down here in Delaware, but it's pretty awesome. Right at the, right at the beach, it might get a little bit more notoriety because, um, you know, President Biden comes here in the summer, but it's a pretty good spot. Yeah, definitely. And I'd like to say that you're pretty darn good at what you do. I mean, the names of the places you trained at alone should catch uh, should catch some eyes. But, you know, I've seen some work from your uh, post-op and I've seen some conservative management patients from you and everyone has had nothing but great things to say about you. And, you know, one of the things I think I saw initially from you was actually someone following a meniscus surgery. And the meniscus injuries have always really fascinated me. They're fairly common, uh, but they can be very complex and come in a variety of different flavors, so to speak. Would you mind kind of breaking down for people just the overview of like the anatomical uh, considerations of the meniscus and how meniscus injuries occur in the first place? Yeah, meniscus, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It is so much variety. And I think that's in a way, I kind of like that. Um, you know, ACL injuries, it's kind of tore, not tore, and a very, very common. A lot of people know about the ACL, but meniscus tears, they come in all different shapes and sizes, all different ages. Um, and there's definitely differences um, between tear patterns and who gets what type of tear, but it's really um, all across the board. Um, so just kind of from a 30,000 foot view, meniscus, they're the little cushion pads in your knee. Um, you have two of them. They're kind of like C-shaped looking discs in between the femur and the tibia. And they're really there for a bunch of reasons. The main one is chondral protection or they absorb a lot of load. I kind of describe them as honestly like our shock absorbers in our knee, kind of like a car. Um, they do have some other functions such as helping to support the ACL going back to that, particularly the posterior horn or the medial meniscus. Um, and they have some important implications and they kind of all play off of each other. And a lot of times some structures can get injured in um, in conjunction with an ACL, ACL tear, particularly the lateral meniscus, it's a little bit more common. Um, and a lot of times you'll see that at the time of surgery to go in and fix an ACL, lateral meniscal tears, particularly in the young athlete, we see a lot of that with um, ACL tears, but medial meniscus tears too. Um, there's a specific part of the medial meniscus in the very, very back that we see, it's called a ramp lesion. It's kind of where the meniscus attaches to what's called our knee joint capsule. Uh, that can kind of get a tear in it when we see an ACL tear too. But, um, you know, that's, again, just related to the ACL literature, but people come in all the time with different types of meniscus tears. Um, you know, they can happen anywhere from the young athletes to even, we see them a ton in the um, older population too. So, you know, those are a little bit more sometimes degenerative type meniscal tears, but we definitely get a lot of acute tears. A lot of times it'll be, you know, sometimes patients will hear a pop or that a lot of times they'll be squatting, they'll twist and then feel pain really on the inner or outer part of their knee, depending on which meniscus was injured. Um, and I think you may have a podcast a little bit in the past about uh, physical exam and like MRI and all that stuff. So I won't really belabor the point with that. But, um, you know, a lot of overlap with ACL injuries. It's just knee pain, a lot of swelling and pain right at that um, joint line. And we kind of get suspicious about a meniscus tear. The nail on the head there, Dr. Kane, is they come in a lot of different flavors. Like we said, I like how you broke it down as like almost like acute versus degenerative, um, because I think we tend to treat those quite differently. Um, and when it comes to tear types or tear patterns, um, the way I always learned it, too, was you can have like a longitudinal or vertical tear 
And if it tears enough, it progresses into what's called like a bucket handle tear of the meniscus. Uh, you can also have like a little radial tear into the meniscus and then little horizontal flap tears. Um, at least those have been the most common ones I've seen clinically. Do you kind of classify them similarly? Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, the, the the classification for meniscal tears, it's really like you said, it's more descriptive. So yep. in other areas of the body, ankle sprains, ligament tears, you know, we kind of grade them on in general grades one, two or three, depending on if it's, you know, partial tear or full tear. These, we don't really do that. It's really more how you described it. It's really more descriptive um, and a firsthand look at what the tear pattern is. So yeah, there's longitudinal tears and a picture's worth a thousand words. So, you know, I know we don't have the picture up, but easy to kind of Google it real quick. Um, but yeah, longitudinal, there's the horizontal tears, which traditionally in the past have been, I don't want to say ignored, but they're a little bit more of a degenerative type tear. Um, but now we've also added, like you alluded to, radial type tears. There's a specific type of tear called a root tear, which is where the meniscus actually anchors or attaches to the bone. So I think as you know, time goes on, we're becoming more aware of the different tear patterns. And some in the past, there's a saying, you may not have seen it, but it's seen you. So they've always been there. We're just getting better at describing them and how that relates to treatment and how we can fix them surgically too. Before we get into how we fix them surgically, there's different zones of the meniscus too. There's some that we describe as like red, red or white, white. To someone who might not be familiar with those terms, what do those terms mean? And what does that mean like in anatomical consideration to the meniscus? Yeah, so um, actually one of the classic studies back in the 80s um, is one of the, it came from the veterinary literature actually, where they have a really classic slide where they cut the meniscus in half after they did a vascularity study. So they injected, I don't even know what it is, some dye that they inject into a sheep or something, but they could really map out how, where the blood flow to the meniscus comes from. And that's where this idea or concept of white, white zone versus red, red zone and red, white zone comes in. So we kind of divide the meniscus up. Again, it's a C-shaped structure. The inner third or inner margin of the meniscus is typically classified white, white because the blood flow really doesn't get there. That, the, that area gets more of its nutrition from diffusion from the synovial fluid. But as you go out towards the periphery where the blood vessels are, that's why we call that a little bit more red, red, because it has better vascularity. In general, and in the past, we've typically not had great success fixing tears that are avascular in the white, white zone. And we've been a little bit more aggressive at treating tears in the red, red zone, because we think the blood is going to um, be there and the blood supply is there so it can heal. You know, I think we're trying to push the envelope a little bit as technology improves and we you know, it's a little bit controversial, but we can add some biologics to, you know, the repairs and stuff that we'll get into. But um, in general, that's where that kind of concept of red, red versus red, white versus white, white comes from. And it, it goes again in decreasing order of vascularity as you go from out to in uh, where it doesn't have any blood flow. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the other piece to that too, is the neural input to the meniscus as well. That's why we say like red, red or white, white is one is in relation to the vascularity and one is in relation to the neural input. And while I don't have a study to reference or a research article, uh, from the patients I've seen pre-op to post-op, I've noticed a trend where tears in the red-red zones or red-white zones seem to hurt more uh, or cause more pain for the patient than those in the white-white zones. And I, I'm suspicious if that's the neural input side of it or if it's just some other factor, but that's just one of those little trends that I've started to notice amongst patients. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think anecdotally the same. I've seen that too. Sometimes people come in and we'll call them an incidental finding. They'll have a really tiny inner margin white, white zone tear that they never even felt. You know, we're getting it for some other reason in their knee, like they rip, ripped our quad tendon or something like that. And they didn't even know they have a little, little tear because it doesn't hurt. But I agree with you. I think some more that are towards the periphery and are usually then also involve more tissue because it's just more tissue out there. I think they tend to hurt a little bit more too. Yeah, no, definitely. I love that point. Um, you know, you mentioned before about root and different locations of the meniscus. We just think about all the uh, different soft tissue and all the other structures really in the uh, different areas of the knee, right? Like if I have a posterior oriented lateral meniscus tear, like we have some hamstring out there, we have ITB out there and later, lateral retinacula. Um, we have a little bit of lateral gastroc. Like there is so much stuff crammed into those back, that back corner, like posterior lateral corner of the knee that, you know, sometimes we often forget like just how many things are going on there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. It's, it's busy. It's a lot of real estate, but important. You know, all those structures are super important. Definitely. And 
you know, while there's a lot of different stuff for lack of a better, for lack of a better way to put it around the knee, um, you know, I've noticed that there's been a lot of advancements over the past several years as far as how meniscus surgeries are performed. And, you know, I've seen several that have been done arthroscopically where you can barely even tell they had incisions because they're so small. It's amazing what you can do through the arthroscopic tools. Um, how do you go about doing your meniscus surgery from the scopes? Um, you know, do you do just the traditional two incision on the front? How do you go about making those incisions and what kind of tools and instrumentation are you generally using? Sure. So whew, that's a big question to answer. So I think <laughs> to take a big picture, look at it, I think for maybe some, you know, people joining us with this podcast, um, I think you kind of compare apples to apples. A lot of patients come in, they'll tell me they had a meniscus repair. So I think first clarifying what meniscus surgery, what we do. So I think, you know, far and away for the long time, uh, a lot of knee scopes were partial meniscectomies, which is different. That's where we go in and we don't do any repairs. We trim up the meniscus. You don't really have to be non-weight bearing for a prolonged period of time. You're pretty quick recovery, but we're not saving the meniscal tissue and we're taking it out. And, you know, for some tears, that's what we need to do, you know, but we're talking, I think, a little bit more focusing on meniscal repair. So there's a big push to try to save the meniscus. Again, we talked about its chondral protection uh, properties and how important it is for the knee health overall. So, you know, not everybody's a candidate for meniscus repair. There's all different types of tear patterns, shapes, sizes, and it also depends what the status of the knee is in terms of the articular cartilage and what else is going on with the knee. But, you know, when we're talking about doing meniscal repairs, there are so many different ways to do that. Um, and again, repairing it, we're trying to save it, stitch it back together. It really, the tear pattern dictates how you do it. Um, it's not a one size fits all approach. And I think, you know, if you try to fix all of them the same way, I don't think you're doing them justice because there's so many different ways to repair them. And it really is dictated on what type of tear it is. You know, a root tear, we're going to fix that differently. You know, typically we're doing that through a transtibial tunnel, meaning kind of re-anchoring that meniscal root back down to the tibia. Versus, yes, a small peripheral longitudinal tear in the posterior horn, that might be amenable to what we call an all-inside technique, um, where we kind of just fix it through those two incisions, through the two portals in the arthroscope. Um, but a huge bucket handle tear, you know, I still think sometimes the gold standard of the inside-out techniques, where we are able to put a lot of sutures, a lot of points of fixation, is the better way to go. Um, so I think you know, to answer your question, how do you repair them? I think that might be how, you know, we're going to answer that through this whole podcast, but there's so many different ways. And I think you have to have, I call it a meniscal repair toolbox. So you have to have a bunch of different tools available to for you to fix the tear based on what the tear pattern dictates and how you can get a best repair done. Um, you know, I think to break it down again, we kind of talked about the difference between partial meniscectomy where we're just trimming it. We're focusing on repair. In general, the three main ways to do a meniscal repair are considered, um, it's basically how you'd fix it. So there's all inside where you do it through those two incisions and everything, all the work's done through those two or maybe a couple accessory ones here or there, but all the work is done in the knee. Um, the inside out approach, which I alluded to before, that's been traditionally considered the gold standard. It's been around a little bit longer, but we basically fix that meniscus Push, putting sutures or, you know, um, fixation device from the inside out, from the inside of the knee and pushing it towards the outside of the knee. They require additional incisions either on the inside part of the knee if we're fixing the medial meniscus or on the outside part of the knee if we're fixing the lateral meniscus. Because for those, we have to watch what we call the neurovascular structure. So on the medial side of the knee, we have to be careful of the saponous nerve and vein, and we have to put a, literally a spoon retractor or whatever retractor, you know, the surgeon prefers but I typically actually just use a big soup spoon. And that's what most of us use, to be honest with you. But you have to make an incision so you protect those neurovascular structures and you have to have a safety incision. On the lateral side, we're worried about the perineal nerve. If you hit that with sutures or a needle, you can get a foot drop, which is not a good day. So you have to make that safety incision on the outside to, fit, to protect that. So again, that's the inside out approach. It's been around probably since the 80s and it's still kind of to this day in the sports world considered the gold standard for like really difficult and most tears. Um, the third way to fix it is called outside in. So now instead of going from inside the knee to out, we're flipping it around. We're going from the outside of the knee to the inside of the knee. That's typically done for tears in the anterior third of the meniscus. Um, you know, that's a little bit of a harder angle to get to if you're doing it with all inside devices or even inside out devices. There are a couple 
tools or tricks on the market now where we can hit those anterior tears with uh, inside out uh, techniques. But traditionally in the past, the outside in approach has been done for the tears in that anterior third of the meniscus. So again, I know we kind of divide the meniscus up into a lot of thirds. We talked red, red, white. We're not talking about it in that plane. That's kind of looking at it in a cross section. We're looking at it now in instead of from the back of the knee, we're looking at the anterior third. Of the I love that. I love that breakdown that you just laid out, Dr. Kane. So essentially, the main three types of repairs, as you mentioned, are the all inside, the inside out, and the outside in. And uh, kind of breaking them down one by one in a little bit more depth. Oh. From the all inside repair, I've heard that the all inside repair, um, at least from what I've heard from different surgeons, tends to be a little bit shorter surgical time, and it tends to be a little bit quicker. Uh, and they really like that because it shortens the patient's tourniquet time. So they're typically in a little bit less pain afterwards compared to someone with a higher tourniquet time. Do you tend to see that hold true in your practice? Yes and no, though. I think you really have to be careful with that because tourniquet time, yeah, that's important, you know, but um, I don't think it's good to say that you should do something just because it's quicker, you know, mm -hmm. Um just because it's quicker does not mean it's better. So if you have a big, big tear and you try to get away with just doing an all inside technique where you maybe only use two or three sutures, are you really doing that meniscus or that patient justice when you really need, should take the extra time to do a proper repair and put more points of fixation in there? The other thing too is when you look at an all inside repair, the devices that are used for that, they're bigger. They have a bigger diameter. So they're making bigger holes through the meniscus. And every time you go in there with an implant, you're potentially creating a stress riser where you could re-tear through that meniscus. So, you know, when we are able to put a ton of sutures in, those needles are really tiny. Most of them only 0.9 millimeters versus you're looking at some of the implants on an all inside repair, you're up to like 2.4 millimeters. And I was not good with math or geometry, but you know, that stress riser, it's almost like, you know, pi R squared, like the risk of um, damage goes up significantly as you increase the diameter of the devices that you're using. So, you know, quicker is not always better. You know, you have to be good before you can be fast. And I think, yes, for sure. For some of the smaller tears, it's, it's great. I think all inside repairs are awesome for the tears that they're indicating for. You don't need an extra assistant, um, which is nice. And it does save a lot of time in the operating room. But again, quicker is not always better. And, you know, we talked about the, all in, the inside out, excuse me, repairs. You have to be careful of the neurovascular structures. Well, when you're doing those approaches, yes, you know, you have to be careful of them, but just because you're doing all inside technique doesn't mean they're not at risk as well. So just because you're not looking at the nerves or the vessels or anything like that doesn't mean that you can't hit those with an all inside device. So it's something you have to be very, very careful for. Uh, you're careful with. There's pluses and minuses to all the different repair techniques. And again, I think it's really the tear pattern that dictates which one's the appropriate one to use. Um, you know, again, sometimes you'll get really complex radial tears that just putting one or two all inside devices in there, that's not going to cut it. It's going to fail. And sometimes it really, you could get a lot of different uh, repair configurations if you go back to the old standard of inside out technique to do it. One thing I will say is there's a little bit of a, I don't want to say, innovation with all inside repairs. Like in the past, the devices that we used had a high tendency for failure, for breakage, and it would actually cause significant chondral injury. You know, now the implants have gotten a lot better and we're able to use those, but there's actually still now indications for all inside repair where we don't use any implants. It's all suture based. Um, so we're able to actually tie knots in the knee. Um, there's different, um, you know, devices that really don't leave any implants in there. So for example, going back to the types of different tears that we have, the horizontal cleavage tears, um, that's where the, the meniscus kind of split into a top and a bottom half. Traditionally, they have not been good to heal. Um, you know, we've tried different repair techniques and none of them have really worked very well. Well, now, you know, we're able to kind of tie those. I call it like a hay bale configuration where we're actually able to use some suture passers and do an all suture based repair and uh, could get pretty good compression and pretty good healing rates with those where it's traditionally in the past, they've been considered, oh, they're not going to heal. That always gets, you know, hundred percent uh, partial meniscectomy or a subtonal meniscectomy, you know, before you can kind of focus, just take the bottom leaflet out or the top leaflet out of a horizontal tear or take them both out. Now we actually have, you know, techniques that we can fix them. Same thing if we go to the lateral side, you know, there's sometimes some tears that are getting close to a structure on the lateral part of the knee called the popliteus or the popliteal tendon. You know, we really don't want to go through the meniscus with an all inside device and tether that lateral meniscus to that tendon. Um, and that's exactly what an all inside device in that section of the meniscus would do. Uh, the lateral meniscus has up to one centimeter of excursion when you're going through a knee range of motion. So it's typically a very mobile structure. 
So it's not going to like being tethered to that Palpatia's tendon. So again, a new, uh, new method of doing an all inside repair there is suture-based, where you're not going through the popliteal tendon at all. You're kind of staying just within the meniscus, but still getting that compression, getting the synovial fluid out at the site of the repair to get it back together in approximation and to get it to heal. In summary, the shorter surgeries does not always mean it's a better surgery. We really have to focus on the quality of the procedure and matching the right intervention from a surgical standpoint to the right patient and right type of tear pattern, as you mentioned. And I think it's interesting that you kind of brought up the whole implanted device round here, uh, because a number of the repairs I've seen clinically have been more of like a suture-based type repair. When you say implanted devices, you know, are you referring to like screw type things or other types of um, other types of hardware that we might use to better fixate the meniscus or hold the meniscus together? Or what types of uh, devices do you typically see used? Yeah, so there's a lot on the market. Um, you know, a lot of them for these all inside devices. Um, and I don't think anyone's getting seeing me off this podcast. So I could probably like use names and stuff. But one of the more popular implants, and there's a ton and each device company has their own, but Smith and Nephew is a pretty popular one, they make a fast fix device. Um, so that is kind of two implants. They're tiny, tiny, tiny little plastic pledgets. So you pop through the meniscus. And again, a video or pictures worth a thousand words, you can watch how it's used, but you kind of pop through the meniscus, you deploy the device. So it goes in as like a skinny piece and then you flip it. So it catches on the back of the meniscus that has suture that then connects to another one of those same devices. You deploy that, flip it and it catches, and then you kind of tension it. And there's a kind of knot tied in between the two, right? So there's a tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of plastic on each end of there. So that's the implant that I'm referring to. And most of the devices on the market have something extremely similar to that. One of the other big companies, Arthrex, they don't have any plastic to it, but it's all suture based, but it's a big wad of suture that goes in the back of the knee or in the back of the uh, meniscus when we do the same thing. So they're the kind of implants I'm talking about. Um, you know, when we talk about some other different repairs, yes, we can use um, what's called anchors, but that's usually more for like, we'll get in like root tears. Um, so it's not going in the knee itself. That's kind of on the tibia through a tunnel, but no, um, most of the all inside devices, they used to be called like darts or something like that, but it's suture, but there's usually something attached to the end of the suture. So that anchors it to the meniscus and that's how you get the fixation for the repair. You also mentioned earlier about the possibility of retear if the repair is not strong enough to hold. And it sounds like based on what you were saying before, that's more common amongst like primarily suture based repairs or repairs where excess material is used and the meniscus is damaged to a higher degree. Uh, you know, I guess I got to ask, how do you go about balancing how much to use on the repair versus not enough to use on the repair to make sure it holds? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that's where it's kind of more of like an art form, you know, not necessarily <laughs> science, to be honest with you. And I don't know if there's a right answer. I think, again, that's kind of the frustrating but fun part of meniscal repairs. You know, there's no tear, no two tears are the same, you know, so it really is based on what the tear looks like and, you know, what kind of fixation you need for it. And it's a balance, you know, you don't want to just shove a million sutures in there. But in general, you know, especially with the inside out repairs, it's a very, very small footprint. So you get more points of fixation. A lot of times the enemy to healing is synovial fluid, to be honest with you, that'll get at the side of the uh, the uh, tear or the repair. And if there's a lot of synovial fluid, that, that meniscus is never going to heal back down. So we're really trying to create a seal. So we're trying to really reapproximate. It's almost like fixing a, a fracture. So we go back to just basic orthopedics, brickness and the broken bone. It's kind of like putting a jigsaw puzzle back together. So we're trying to recreate the anatomy before the tear happened. And whatever method you need to do that, you know, it, it's different for every tear. Um, it's just, I think, again, going back to that toolbox, it's just you need to have a bunch of options available. And it's really based on, you know, what that tear pattern dictates. And when you get in there, you never know. An MRI is a great screening tool. And I know you talked about diagnosis and it really does help to tell what is it torn or not. And it gives you an idea of the tear pattern, but you never know until you actually look at the meniscus firsthand with the scope, what it's going to look like and what type of tear you're going to get and what kind of repair it's going to need. I like that a lot. And, you know, to that point too, it, it really is an art and we see the same thing from a rehab standpoint, right? Like, I might get one guy after a meniscus repair and, you know, almost pain-free, just crushing it and quad comes back super quick and, you know, we're just progressing nice and easy. And I might get someone else who the knee's just really, really puffy and swollen and our approach has to be a little different for each of them. So, 
you know, on both sides, the surgical side and the rehab side, I definitely agree that sometimes it is a little bit of an art form and it's not really something we can just, you know, up and put in words right away, or at least I can't yet. It's one of those things that we really just have to modify what we do to the patient in front of us at the end of the day. Um, you know, I also saw some literature that said the all inside repairs primarily used for more posterior horn type tears of the meniscus. Do you typically use it for that posterior aspect as well? Or are you using it more for a tear in like the body of the meniscus or? Uh, no, I, I tend to agree. You know, I think that's where most of us do use those is in the posterior horn. Um, again, you never know what the, the tear is going to dictate. But in general, um, even the mid body or like coming more towards the middle portion of the meniscus, I'd still consider a uh, all inside device. But if you're getting to need to use like a lot of them, you know, one is cost. Um, they, they're not cheap. And, you know, I know, you know, you need to just use what you need to use to get the patient a good repair, but you do have to be a little bit cost conscious. But it's really, though, becomes if you're poking a million holes in that meniscus, you do have to be careful about stress risers for that thing retearing. And if you're getting to the point where you're having to use a lot of devices, um, I think you really do need to consider at that point, like, Mal, this may be better fixed with an inside out repair. Again, going back you know, sometimes the old ways are the best and it, we do have innovation and we're getting better with some stuff. But when you do the inside out repair and really take the time to put a lot of points of fixation in there, I think it gives for a stronger repair. And then it allows to and we'll get maybe later with the rehab part of it. I think it allows sometimes for um, a stronger repair that can maybe allow for earlier weight bearing. You know, if you're holding on with tenuous fixation and they start to weight bear early, that thing's probably going to re-tear re pretty quickly. Versus if you give them a robust repair, um, you know, I think it's almost like like rotator cuff too. Like if it depends on the strength of the repair, size of the tear, and how many tendons involved. Same thing with the meniscus. You know, I think it really dictates, um, you know, rehab in terms of how good do you feel about that repair leaving the operating room did you put a lot in there felt really stable to the probe or are you like praying that person doesn't sneeze and cough in the pack you and it pops right away you know i like that analogy and you know to your point from earlier too you mentioned that the inside out repair is the gold standard and it is the strongest repair on that repair i've heard or seen some surgeons prefer a absorbable suture and some prefer a non-absorbable suture for their um for their inside out repairs. Do you have a preference between the two or, you know, for those who might not know the difference, what exactly do you mean by absorbable versus non-absorbable suture for an inside out repair? Yeah. So um, absorbable, it sounds like what it sounds like, you know, over time, your body will kind of take care of that and the suture will dissolve and go away. I tend to not appreciate those. Um, I don't think they have the best um, tensile strength. Um, and a lot of times when we're doing these, these sutures come on really, really long needles so we can pass them. And then our assistant who's holding that spooner tractor can find the needle and pull it out. Um, I really am super happy. Um, again, with one of the companies called Arthrex, they have what's called suture tape. So it's, um, it's suture, it's not absorbable, but it's a kind of like almost like flat ribbon. It is really strong, um, which is awesome. Like you can almost pull a car with it. Like when you're tying, like I come home and I have you know, suture tape cuts on my pinkies, you know, when you're tying, it's just really durable. Um, I don't think there's anything more frustrating than if you do this great job of like passing these needles, you got the suture exactly where you want it. And then you or your assistant goes to tie the knot, you know, because we have to get that suture, you know, tight somehow. So we got to tie knots, right? So if you go there and then all of a sudden the suture just breaks, man, that is so frustrating. You just want to start like, oh, it's it's rough because you got to do the whole thing all over again because the suture doesn't even count. So, you know, the absorbable suture, I don't really think is used too, too commonly. Sometimes for those outside in repairs, we'll see it because um, the anterior horn of the meniscus doesn't see the same kind of loads as the posterior and the mid body. And that has traditionally been done that way for the outside in technique, um, which without going into specifics, we kind of pass that suture through these like little needles or cannulas um, and then have to retrieve them. So to do that, you need a, a suture that's a little bit more rigid. And that traditionally we've used in the past is something called PDS, which looks like fishing line. So that does dissolve. But in the anterior horn, it doesn't seem to be a problem. But it is not that good when you're trying to not tie and it, it'll absorb and then break and then your repair fails. So I tend to use non-absorbable. And, um, you know, with those types of sutures, particularly with the inside out technique, um, you're really not getting much suture in the knee at all. Like you can hardly see it. Like it goes into a little tiny sliver of the meniscus and then right at the capsule. So there's no real worry about 
the suture hurting the cartilage, all the knots are outside the knee. So there's really no reason not to use non-absorbable in my opinion. Um, I think it just leads to a stronger, stronger repair and you don't have to worry about it and you can handle the suture much easier. No, I like that. I like that. That makes a lot of sense is at the end of the day, as you mentioned earlier, you want to do the surgery once and not have to go in again. And if you do it right the first time with, you know, something that's strong enough and hopefully going to hold, hopefully there's no need for a second intervention in five years, 10 years, or maybe even longer. So I am all for the approach that, you know, offers the best strength to the repair and hopefully minimizes, you know, a need to go in a second time. You also mentioned before about, you know, occasionally with the inside out, we might have to do a additional incision. And you said that that would vary based on if it's a medial or lateral meniscus to, uh, tear, if I'm remembering correctly, like where the additional incision is going to be? Correct. Yep. So yeah, again, we're doing that so we can uh, protect the neurovascular structure. So on the medial side, we're going between an interval. Um, we're using the what's called the medial head of the gastroc um, in the back and the semimembranosis of one of our hamstring tendons down on the bottom. And then we put the spoon kind of in that little triangle. So the capsule's in front of it. Uh, we were trying to protect the saponous nerve um, so they don't get, you know, post-operative neuropathy or issues with the saponous nerve. So that's the medial side. And then the lateral side, we're kind of splitting the IT band, going right in front of the hamstring tendons and protecting that perineal nerve. So again, we don't hurt that with the needles and they don't get a foot drop. Um, so that is, you know, I won't lie, you know, it is... Um, I think it's a skill that as more and more people are doing all inside repairs, because a lot of them, you know, my go-to is an all inside. I'm not going to lie. Like if it's a nice, easy repair, all inside, 100%. But I still think, you know, buck and handle tears, big tears, complex tears, it really does dictate that you need the inside out repairs. But as more and more, I think, trainees and people coming up just see all inside, the art form of doing the all inside technique is getting lost a little bit. And I think it's a shame because I really think it's essential for some tears. They really just dictate that you need to do that extra incision on the inside or outside of the knee um, and you just get a better repair. But it's important to make those incisions. So a lot of people maybe don't because they're afraid or they don't want to make that incision. You know, incisions heal. You know, you can it's going to be a little bit of a scar, but would you rather that or have a nerve injury? So, you know, I think if you don't make that incision and you just start passing these needles, you're like, oh, we'll be okay. You're going to increase your risk that you're going to hit something that you shouldn't. So I think it's really important to use these retractors and make these safety incisions um, so you don't run into those issues. You know, you can't avoid a problem. You got to prevent it. So I think it's really important to take the time, learn the anatomy. If you're not comfortable doing it, I don't know how many surgeons I'm talking to on this podcast, but you know, you just kind of take the time to learn either in a cadaver course or something, because I think it's an art form that you really need to have in your toolbox. Again, going back to that toolbox, you know, you need to have that available because some tears really dictate that type of a repair. Yeah, no, definitely. And ultimately at the end of the day, we're all trying to serve the patient at the best of our ability. So taking the time to learn those different things and expand your toolbox and learn when to use what kind of tool. And I'd imagine, you know, from your eyes, it, it, kind of becomes almost like a clinical judgment thing sometimes, right? Like you probably get like a gut feeling with certain types of tears or certain patients. Like, you know, I, I just feel like I should go with this approach instead of that approach. Like, you know, maybe you see a complex bucket handling. You're like, you know, I could do an all inside and it would probably hold, but my gut tells me I should do it inside out because it's a stronger repair. Yeah, completely agree. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. Again, when you look at the tear, when you get in there, I think it you have an idea from the MRI. So, yeah, if I know it's a bucket handle tear, I have a pretty low threshold that I'm going to do an inside out, but not always, you know, and a, a lot of things come into play too. Um, what other concomitant injuries or surgeries you're doing? What does their articular cartilage look like? You know, because again, we're pushing repair and I definitely, you know, try to push the envelope and repair a lot. But if it's a tear and they have, you know, horrible arthritis, we're not that you know that's probably the wrong surgery they're not really a candidate for a repair right so I, I think you do have an idea going into it but you never know until you get in there and a lot of factors influence what type of repair you're going to use you know you also mentioned about the outside in repair a few different times and i don't really think i see many of those clinically you mentioned that it's more of uh of a repair we use for the anterior horn of the meniscus and as you alluded to we tend to see very few tears in the anterior horn or at least i do um, you know, a lot of the tears in the meniscus I see are usually either in conjunction with an ACL, as we mentioned before, with that valgus moment, you know, high force, either contact or non-contact, 
or um, in a deep knee bend and rotation type of pattern. And when I see that, you know, mechanically, that's more of a posterior horn biased compression and force on the meniscus. We're not getting nearly as much in the anterior horn. Um, I guess if I was going to see an anterior horn tear, I'd expect it to be more of like an extension biased injury than a flexion biased injury. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, it's like, it's really not that common. It's way more posterior horn and mid body tears, but you're right. Um, a lot of times we'll see, particularly the lateral meniscus and athletes. Um, sometimes I'll have a hyperextension injury or land on an extended knee, maybe fill a pop ACL is fine, but then you get a radial split at the junction of the anterior horn and mid body. Um, I think that's probably one of the more common scenarios that we see. Um, and it's not nearly as common, but yeah, it's it, the anterior horn, just because of, like you said, the femoral rollback and like a compression forces on the posterior horn, way 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 more common but you do still again see tears and going back to that toolbox is just another way because you never know what you're going to see it's just another way that we can fix those types of tears that we you need to know because sometimes you get in there and you're like oh i'm going to fix every you know your hammer everything's a nail i'm going to fix everything the same way i'm going to use an all inside device for every single meniscus repair well you might not be able to reach it like the angle it's really in front of you so you're almost like working backwards on yourself that you really can't get the correct angle um they've kind of changed a, a few things where now we do have some options we didn't have before we have one um all inside device that we can bend a lot so we can almost make like a pretty steep curve and hit hit the answer horn um you know that one's a nice option that we didn't have before we also have for the inside out repair i know that's typically more in the back but we now have these kind of what we call zone specific cannulas so ways that we can bend those really long flimsy needles to get to the very front of the tear but um even then it doesn't always work you know sometimes it's a really anterior tear and you have to do that outside in technique right and as you mentioned earlier that outside in technique go, means we're going from the outside of the knee into the knee with our repair. Correct. Yeah, you're kind of um, poking through with these um, what we call 18 gauge spinal needles or whatever type of needle that has a hole in the middle. So we poke through, we can remove the little stylet that's inside the needle. And then there's a, a needle that's a hole. We kind of use them as like a spear almost. And then it's uh, you do that twice. And then one of the needles you put this little kind of snare trap in there. So it's almost like um, kind of like the claw game at the arcade. Uh, you're like kind of just retrieving suture and then you have this kind of looped suture that then you you know make an incision and tie over the capsule. But the way that you're kind of approaching the meniscus, you're doing it, like you said, from the outside in instead of the inside out. Yeah, definitely. I like that. The video, I think, yeah, video would be easier than me trying to explain it. But yeah, just a different way to do it. We're gonna we're gonna have to get you a social media channel and you can put some videos. Oh God, yeah. different uh, <laughs> repairs, Doctor Kane. That's scary, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen one clinically, but you know, I know one or two other clinicians that have actually seen a open type of meniscus repair. Is that anything that's really common practice at this point, Doctor Kane? Um, so you know, I think. It's kind of hard. What's the terminology? Are they calling an inside out repair with that extra incision and open repair? I don't know. You know, um, I mean, an open, open repair, like with an arthrotomy, like through the knee, like where you open the knee up completely. That's really not done much anymore. Occasionally, we'll see um, someone who comes in with a lateral tibial plateau fracture. A lot of times you're there putting a plate on. And you'll do a meniscus repair at the same time. And a lot of the um, plates for a tibial plateau have little holes at the very top for suture. So, you know, that is one instance where we still do see like a really truly open arthrotomy. But I kind of think maybe they were referring to an inside out repair. And again, because it's just not, I think it's not done as frequently as maybe it should be or it was in the past because we have all these all inside devices that even some maybe therapists or people that aren't familiar they're calling some inside out repairs, open repairs when they're really not. It's just, it's still arthroscopic, but it's just how we do it, you know? But there are, there are very, very rarely some instances with a truly open repair, but they're few and far between in 2024. You also mentioned before about the root tears. Um, and the root tears are something I've found to be very uh, complex. And, you know, our little uh, phrase lately has been, you know, you really only get one shot to do it right and one yeah. shot for it to hold. Um, you know, if, if you re-tear a root tear, that's uh, it's a very complicated situation to find yourself in. So um, you mentioned before you do it through the transtibial tunnel. Um, it's funny because every time I see a root tear, it's in conjunction with an ACL tear. I'm not sure if there's a strong correlation there. Um, but 
Um, we take it a lot slower from a rehab standpoint initially. I usually don't get people weight-bearing at all in the first month. Um, sometimes we even wait closer to the six-week mark, and in one case, eight weeks. Um, just depending on the type of tear, depending on what exactly the surgeon saw when they were in there, this is one area where I really, really tread slow. Yeah, you know, I, I think root tears, again, they've been around. They're not new. We just, I think, are becoming more aware of what they are and what their consequences are over the last decade or so. Um, <clears throat> to kind of break them out in general, um, medial root tears, a lot of times we see those in the 40, 50 year olds. They're the ones that kind of got out of the car, twisted, felt a pop, and they have medial sided pain. Um, and they're a little bit more on the degenerative type spectrum, whereas the lateral meniscal root tears are way more common in the younger athlete with an ACL tear. Um, you know, it's estimated that up to one in every seven ACL tears also has a lateral meniscus root tear. So again, this is the kind of thing that, you know, it, they've seen us, but we may not have seen it, but I think we're becoming more aware and they um, also aware of the consequences of a root. You know, when you have a root tear, They've done a lot of studies where they show um, they do like pressure sensor mapping in the affected compartment. And when you have a root tear, it's almost like you've had a subtotal meniscectomy, meaning you have no meniscus at all, because that meniscus can't do its job of transmitting that load to the tibia because it doesn't have that anchor point. And then what happens is the meniscus gets extruded. So I give the analogy of like you cut the top off a banana and step on the peel and the banana is now squirted out. Like it's not in the joint. It's not doing what it needs to do. So, you know, the lateral meniscal root tears are way, way, way more common with ACLs, but the medial meniscal roots we still see, and we tend to still recommend fixing, but they're different. Um, you know, I think for the meniscal roots on the medial side, we really have to take into account the, um, a couple of factors, the cartilage status of that compartment is really big. So, um, you know, we see them a lot of times maybe in a little bit older patients, but if they have really bad arthritis, they're really not a candidate for repair. No, that's a great point. You know, going back to what we talked about initially on the acute versus degenerative tear, um, you know, the, the later stage tears are certainly ones I tend to see uh, different surgical approaches used compared to the younger ones where preservation tends to be the goal with the repair. Um, you know, we you mentioned the transtibial tunnel, and we talked a little bit about how the uh, lateral meniscus root tear in general uh, is more common with the younger ACL. Um, are you able to do the tunnel through the same incisions you would do for your ACL graft um, and, you know, ACL surgery and tunnels um, that way? Or do you have to do extra incisions on top of the ACL reconstruction, uh, you know, incisions themselves? Sure. So um, my mentor, Dr. Laprat, would kill me if I don't answer this correctly. Um, this is one that uh, I would think if you just go back and look at the anatomy, there is no possible way that you are recreating the anatomy of that lateral meniscal root if you're putting it through one tunnel. I know some people might try to debate that and cut corners because it is. It's way more convenient if you try to just make one tunnel, because if you're doing a separate root tunnel, you do have to worry about the risk of what we call convergence. So those tunnels colliding with each other. But if you try to squeeze a root tunnel into the ACL tunnel, you're doing one of two things, or most likely both. You're putting the lateral meniscal root attachment way too anterior, and you're putting the ACL tunnel way too posterior. Um, you know, if you really look at the cadaveric dissections, the they're almost a centimeter away from each other. So to try to recreate the anatomy of both of those correctly through one tunnel, it's you can't do that. It's impossible. So I personally think and strongly recommend two tunnels. Um, you know, the ACL tunnel has to be separate from the lateral meniscal root tunnel. Cause again, we're trying to recreate anatomy. And if you're putting that tunnel in the wrong spot, you're not restoring that meniscal function and it's not going to work. Yeah, no, exactly. And to that point as well, uh, I believe a very high, um, contributing factor to ACL reconstruction failure rate is incorrect tunnel placement. So if you don't get the anatomy right, the ACL could re-tear, it's that increased risk of re-tear a second time. And, you know, that's something going through it once is bad, but going through it twice or possibly even three times can be really debilitating or career ending for some athletes. Um, so getting that tunnel placement right. Um, and um, as you mentioned too, it's just as important for the root repair uh, because if that repair doesn't hold and the meniscus is not functioning as it should, you know, I love the analogy you gave of the banana, like 
you know, we're, we're literally just adding insult to injury at that point. So I'm a very big believer and fan of getting it right the first time and hopefully avoiding uh, a need for anything again in the future. Yeah. And, you know, I think the most important part is trying to put back what you had before you got injured. And if you're not going to do that, you're going to do a non-anatomic repair. You're not doing what you should and it's not going to work. And in particularly these young athletes with ACL tears in the lateral compartment in particular, they can go on to pretty devastating osteoarthritis pretty quickly. You know, it's already a risk from the injury, but if you give them a non-functional lateral meniscus because you put the root in the wrong spot or the root re-tears, you know, they can get grade four car cartilage changes, unfortunately, early in life. And then there's really not a great option for them. Yeah. And unfortunately, I've seen that clinically. And, you know, it, it's a really weird conversation to have with an athlete in their late teens or 20s, even sometimes about, you know, cartilage defect and, you know, options for cartilage and joint preservation long term, right? And, you know, that's where things like the Oats and the Macy procedures come in and that sort of thing. But, you know, if we could avoid the need for secondary procedures to, you know, maintain articular cartilage in the joint, then why don't we? Um, you know, you, you brought up an interesting point earlier, too, that I really want to ask you, because I've seen a couple repairs where they do anchor to that popliteus muscle. Um, and I've noticed that individuals that have a repair there tend to be in a lot more pain. Um, so if you're looking at a meniscus tear, what would lead you to, you know, decide I'm going to anchor this tear to, you know, the popliteus muscle or tendon? Um, you know, what kind of tear would it be? And why would you choose to do that? And what kind of you know, device would you use to anchor it there? Or, you know, would there be some kind of alternative anchor option other than the popliteus? Uh, yeah, well, I, I would personally would try not to anchor it there. You know, I think that's the main goal is because um, we don't want to, because I, I do think it's not supposed to be tethered like that. The lateral meniscus has a lot of mobility and excursion. And then you, you know, tack it down to this popliteal structure, which is also a dynamic structure. I just think it adds for a lot of pain and there's going to be over constraint and you're going to have problems with healing. So I really, you know, each tear, again, going back to that, it's different. So it's hard to give a general statement. But, you know, if you're going to do an all-inside device or all-inside repair, try to not go into the popliteus. Try to look at that tendon, and go either right next to it or right, you know, on either side of it. Or if you have a tear that dictates that it needs fixation where that tendon is, they do have all-inside options now where you could take a suture passer and then just try to tie knots in that um, meniscal tear. Um, you know, in general, the, the we worry about knots in the joint because we don't want it to hurt the cartilage. But more often than not, you can try to push that knot stack away from the cartilage. And it ends or goes a process called synovialization. So it kind of gets scarred over. So it's not this like prominent knot stack. Um, or going back to do an inside out repair because you could do you can angle the needles and you can kind of do a different type of repair to try to avoid tethering it to the popliteus um and then just real quick going back to your point before about the cartilage changes and you know not repairing it well i think the other thing that's really important pertains to the lateral root is um vigilance you know again you have to look for these you know it's estimated that almost one in seven acls has a lateral meniscus root tear so they're there so if you're not seeing lateral meniscal root tears when you're doing acl reconstructions you're not probing that lateral meniscus root you're going to miss some and then you know they're going to have issues with that later they're not always picked up on mri you know so mris are great they can tell us a lot of information but the sensitivity of mri picking up a lateral meniscus root tear you know, it, it's not 100%, you know, so you really have to have awareness and look for these um, to really try to make sure you're not doing your papers and just trying to like stick your head in the sand and like, oh, it's fine. It's going to heal. It's not going to heal. You have to recreate that anatomy and do the repair. No, I love that point. That is a great point. You know, if you didn't look, then how do you know it's not? Yeah. Involved? So uh, I love that point. And, you know, the other thing I hear a lot, too, is, you know, with the ACL reconstruction, you know, our meniscus repair, um, you know, long-term outlook tends to be a little bit better because, you know, we're drilling into bone. That tunnel is essentially going to soak the joint in the meniscus that you just repaired with all those different growth factors from the bone. Um, but, you know, if there is something there that you didn't repair or address during the surgery, um, I'd imagine it's not going to just magically heal on its own, even when it's soaked in, you know, a lot of biologic compounds from the bone tunnel itself. You still have to address whatever tear is present. 
Yep. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, you can't ignore it. You know, if it's torn, you got to put fixation in there to fix it. You know, it's interesting, too, as you mentioned about, you know, the dynamic nature of the lateral meniscus, because most people think of the meniscus as something stable, not something that moves around in the joint. But, you know, when you think about the size of the knee and the amount of excursion it has, it moves around quite a bit in there. Um, and there's different variants. Uh, you know, thankfully, they're rare. But, you know, the discoid meniscus comes to mind for me, like, you know, you have variants where that thing moves around a ton more because it's lacking, you know, stabilization structures for one reason or another um, in certain individuals. And in that case, I feel like, you know, the importance of additional stabilization um, becomes even more important because you've got something that was inherently unstable for, you know, possibly an individual's entire life uh, before it was torn. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, the just the anatomy of the medial meniscus, it's different. It's wider. It's got more attachment sites to the, you know, tibia. But yeah, you're right. You know, that discoid meniscus, it's, it can be pretty mobile. Um, so it's kind of rare when I do see a discoid meniscus to just trim it. Um, you know, I'm almost always, not always, but almost always do what's called a saucerization and make it look more like a normal meniscus, but follow that with a repair. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it can have a lot of excursion and I don't think it's meant to have that much in some of those variants and it does dictate repair. On the rehab side, you know, the way I usually approach meniscus repair or really any post-op sports knee in general is we always start with regaining extension motion first. Uh, and we really hammer that. And that's probably the most important thing from an ACL side as well, getting into that a bit. I think the ability to get the extension range of motion back quickly uh, really tells me a lot about how someone is going to progress for the rest of their rehab. And, you know, I don't just mean like passively being able to move them there. Like I want someone to actively be able to squeeze their quad to the point where they can achieve open chain hyperextension or whatever their full knee extension is on their own. And it's a race to get that back. Um, you know, I don't really like to push the flexion too much early on because a lot of protocols actually restrict how far you should flex someone after repair. Um, and I've found that pretty much every time, like I would say 95% of the time we get, uh, within three to five degrees of full flexion range within eight weeks, just going slow and steady with it and respecting tissue healing timelines. So extension first hammer extension, hammer quad strength, um, you know, swelling control becomes huge. And, you know, some of my patients laugh when I tell them this, but, you know, we're going hours per day on the elevation and ankle pumps. Like I tell people to do tens of thousands per day. Um, you know, we're icing 10 on 15 on 15 off, um, you know, whatever interval suits you best, but we're doing a lot of ice early on to try and bring the effusion down. Um, and I think that if you can start the first six to eight weeks with getting full extension range, slow and steadily increasing pain-free flexion range, hammer the quad strength and get the effusion down, the rest of your rehab is really going to fall into place pretty quickly. Uh, I completely agree. You know, it's always I have that constant struggle and I try to hammer it with these patients, you know, don't put a pillow under your knee, you know, it's going to feel better. Put that pillow <laughs> on your knee, like don't do it, put it under your heel. Like I cannot agree more full extension. You're not going to hurt any meniscal repairs in full extension. That meniscus is really not getting loaded much. And if you have any type of flexion contraction, once you do start to put weight on it, it's a mess. Your gait mechanics are all off. It's really hard to regain, like come back from that. And I agree with you. I think the flexion, you know, it depends what other maybe procedures you're doing with the knee, if you have, you know, other injuries or something, but you generally do, I think, tend to get that flexion back. I don't worry about that. I completely agree with you. I worry about the extension and I do the same. I really try to hammer, get it fully straight, get it fully straight. Don't let that quad atrophy get the swelling down. Um, you know, I think just like not all tears are the same and you need a toolbox to do all the repairs. I don't think all meniscal repair rehabs are the same either. You know, I think it's, I really try to keep an open dialogue and I give all my patients um, uh, their physical therapy prescriptions, but I really try to be descriptive and write what type of tear we, uh, they had, what type of repair we did. I have different rehab protocols and, um, you know, for roots, ramps, radial tears, all that kind of stuff. There's different, there's little nuances to it, but in general, I agree with you. I actually restrict most repairs of mine 
zero to 90 degrees reflection for the first two weeks because we don't want to do more rollback. And when I do my repairs, when I'm tying sutures or putting the implants in for a root repair, I tend to do that at 90. So I know the repair is stable through that arc of motion from zero to 90. Um, but yeah, I don't go crazy aggressive with deflection. And then even with the root tears and a lot of the repairs too, particularly like complex radial tears, I really try to limit weighted knee flexion. I really try not to go past 70 degrees for almost up to six months in some, in some in really bad ones. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Extension all day long flexion. We'll get that back. I go slow with that. And the weight bearing is different. You know, there's differing opinions. And it, again, it depends on the strength of the repair, the size of the tear, whether, whether or not you're doing it in conjunction with an ACL reconstruction. Some have accelerated rehab protocols for weight bearing. Uh, but it really, the tear pattern dictates that, you know, most of the literature shows a lot of the root tears in particular. If you try to advance your weight bearing quicker than four to six weeks, your risk of failure goes up. Now, sometimes, you know, a very stable repair that you did bucket or not, or if you have a ton of fixation points with inside out technique and they had an ACL done at the same time, maybe you can start to load them a little bit earlier. But I think, again, it just, it really, it's dictated or predicated upon the repair that you get. And I think open dialogue with the therapist is crucial. I really try any questions I have them call me. I write all the stuff down that we did. Sometimes I try to include an operative report if I can. So it gives, you know, the therapist a better idea of what do we do in there. And that just goes to the point of the importance of communication between the PT or rehab specialist and the surgeon, because, you know, every tear, every patient is different. So if you don't have that communication back and forth, or if you don't pick up on little things that go wrong, you know, like say someone starts to develop like a meniscus type pain uh, in the rehab, like, you know, I'm getting on the phone, I'm calling the surgeon or texting the surgeon like that day, like you yeah. know, there's certain things we don't like to see. Um, so, you know, having that communication back and forth is essential. Um, you know, in general, most of the repairs that I see, um, you know, we're restricting uh, to your point about restricting flexion, closed chain. I'm usually not going past about 90 degrees for about three to four months. You know, even if they can do it, even if they can, you know, move past it, I'm not going to load them in that positions uh, in those positions, because why would I risk, you know, someone who's progressing? Well, why would I risk them retearing in PT of all places? Um, just so I can load them a little bit more and a little bit of a deeper angle, right? Like I can get everything I need initially from a closed chain standpoint, zero to 90. Um, you know, I think you look at the timelines for meniscus return to playing, we're looking six to eight months. So I have plenty of time to get someone back. I don't need to force them into full range, um, you know, cheek to grass, type of like barbell back squat here. Like we don't need to get in that range at the 10 week mark or the 12 week mark. Um, I'm a huge fan of squatting to a box and I will measure the height of the box that I use and measure the knee flexion angle that the patient has at that point before we load as a way to, you know, incorporate higher loads. I think that lifting heavy should be a part of rehab for athletes, but there is a safe way to do it. Um, we also just got a yoke in our uh, Salisbury location. And some people are going to say, why the heck do you need a strongman yoke in PT? But when you stop and think about it, you know, we're essentially carrying a high load, but we're walking with it. So we're not getting much knee flexion at all there, but we're able to load the entire system with hundreds and hundreds of pounds of weight safely. Um, so I can get that overload effect without really putting anyone in a position that would risk any type of injury to the meniscus. So, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of great ways to load patients following a meniscus repair safely. Um, and I think that could probably be a podcast episode in its own. Uh, there's another thing I've shied away from, and maybe this is just my own, you know, still learning kind of process here, but anatomically with medial meniscus tears, you mentioned the semimembranosus muscle earlier, and that tendon, I believe, ta attaches right onto the, the medial meniscus. Um, so I actually don't go crazy with the hamstring work, especially open chain uh, early on in the early and even early mid phases of, um, of meniscus rehab with patients. Um, I really hammer the quad heavily and you know, I get the hamstring back. We make sure we have good ratios and we test all that. But 
that's not really an early priority for me, uh, just due to the anatomical consideration of semi M tendon and the medial meniscus. Yeah, honestly, to hear you say all that stuff is so refreshing. And I wish all therapists thought the same way you do to be, make my life a little bit easier. But no, I completely agree with everything you said. Um, I, I wish people wouldn't go nuts on like going, like you said, cheek to grass and focusing on that because you don't need to do that. Um, you know, that's going to come later. And I do think some of it is setting expectations. Again, apples to oranges. I think people are like, oh, I'm just getting my knee scoped and taking my niscus, you know, getting cleaned out or whatever. And they're back in six weeks. To your point, you know, I think really doing it right, return to sport, six months minimum for me, you know, and I say that up front. So I think just to paint their expectations. So you do kind of set those realistic goals and those time frames. So you're not loading it. I agree with you too with the semi-membranosis. Again, it depends on where the tear is. You know, it's kind of right at that junction and push your horn mid-body. So yeah, if you're kind of getting close with some of your sutures or your implants or it can pull on that. So yeah, I do agree. And the ham, and I don't feel like the hamstrings are hard to get back. I feel like it's all quad all the time. And it's just focused on that from day one and extension. And I think everything else, like you said, falls into place. You know, I think it follows suit as long as you take care of that stuff first. I completely agree. And, you know, on that return to play element real quick, um, you know, I know a lot of individuals who don't test at all before they discharge someone. And to me, that's a huge disservice to the person in front of you. You know, how are you discharging them if you didn't test anything? Um, and, you know, with the technological advancements we have in rehab now, you can get some type of dynamometer or load cell for like two, three hundred bucks. You yeah. can get a pretty quick and dirty hamstring and quad ratio calculation and, you know, get multi-angle measurements of quad strength and hamstring strength pretty easily and pretty quickly at, you know, a very small cost. Um, so I'm a huge fan of doing that. Um, on the plyo side, you know, I think most rehab professionals are familiar with, you know, your single leg hop, your triple hop, your crossover hop. Um, I like those but I have fallen in love with the vertical jump. So I literally put someone on a vertical jump mat and we do double leg vertical and then we do single leg uh, left and right. And I like that better because in order to jump up, you really have to load that knee, right? Like you yeah. have to bend forward and get more of a shin angle. I've yep. seen some people compensate in crazy ways when they hop and they don't load their knee much at all on the jump. They will on the landing, but Sometimes those landings look a little sketchy or shady. Um, I think the single leg vertical holds a lot of value in determining how well someone can load that knee and how much power they have. Um, you know, I don't think the body is going to let you jump higher than it feels comfortable absorbing that force from. Um, so I love the single leg vertical. Um, I also love the single leg squat. Um, you know, I mentioned before, uh, about the dynamometer and load cell, I think open chain uh, quad is great and probably the gold standard still, but I also want to see how that thing functions. So I do a single leg squat just to a bench about 18 inches. I do left versus right, and I'm doing max reps body weight to see the endurance of it, but I'm also giving the patient a dumbbell 50% body weight equivalent, and I'm looking to see max reps under that kind of load. And yeah, that's pretty heavy. That's a lot of force on the knee. But, you know, if we're comfortable and confident that they're going to be issue free going back to sport, then I should be OK with them taking that amount of force. Um, and if I'm not comfortable with that kind of test, then that probably tells me they're not ready to go back. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And, you know, it's hard because. I don't think there's nearly as much data on return to sport testing for meniscal repairs as there is, I'm just going to equate it to ACL. And yep. that's what I use as a proxy because you really don't have a lot of good data to guide us. So I use return to sport testing for ACL as kind of like a dirty extension of that, even though it's not really appropriate or capturing all meniscal repair patients, but it's the best I think that we have. So yes, I agree. I have patients make sure they have 90% quad strength compared to the contralateral side. And then I give them the ACL return to testing criteria is that great? I don't know. I think it's the best we have right now because it again goes back to the fact that there's so many different types of tears and so many different types of repairs. It's hard to standardize all that stuff as opposed to an ACL. It's a little bit easier to kind of, we have better numbers to look at this stuff and we can standardize it. So I think all those points that you brought up, 
fantastic. I think it's really creative ways to think about going about return to sport testing. I think that's an area that we can potentially do a lot more research on and get more guidance for. But I agree. I, I do still test patients, but I just use the ACL stuff as an extension. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, you know, to that point, I think the future with the incorporation of force plates and other, you know, technological advancements is going to push the envelope on that return to play even further. Uh, but, you know, I feel like we've covered so many amazing points and details relating to the meniscus injuries and meniscus repairs in general um, in today's episode, Dr. Kane. I really appreciate your time and everything you shared with us. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything that we missed? Um, no, I think we covered a lot of it. You know, I, I, unfortunately, I think um, sometimes I'm very visual learner. So I think some of these like surgeries or repair techniques and tear patterns, I think, you know, I, I do better seeing them. So there's a ton of resources available online of videos and stuff like that. Or you know, if anyone's interested, I'm sure I'll leave my contact info and anyone on the podcast can get in touch with me. They can share anything, they, any questions they may have. You know, I think there is definitely a campaign to save the meniscus, you know? So in the past, it's always been cut out. And sometimes we still have to do that. But I think with advances in uh, repair techniques and rehab protocols and biologics and stuff like that, I think we can kind of push the envelope and achieve a lot of good repairs. They don't all work, but I think it's good to try, you know, particularly in the younger patients where we really need that meniscus. I think if you're not doing a few take backs for repair failures, because unfortunately they don't all work. Um, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that every repair I do works, you know, they just don't, you know, but I think if you pick up, pick your patients appropriately and again, use that toolbox to fit the repair type that you need for the tear type and do what's best for the patient and they do well with rehab and they're compliant. I think a lot of them do do very well. And I think, you know, if you don't know how to fix these or if you're interested, I think always great learning opportunities because I do think, you know, it's better for our patients if we're able to achieve a repair. And I think we can do that in the large majority of cases. Completely agree. I love where your head is at, Dr. Kane. And I think that's one of the reasons or one of the many reasons you and I get along so well. Uh, for people who want to find out more about you or, you know, maybe they want to check out your clinical practice in Southern Delaware, where can they find you at? Our, you know, First Aid Orthopedics, you know, our website. Um, and then, you know, I'm active with the um, uh, AOSSM, so our American Orthopedic Sports Medicine Society. You know, I serve a couple of hats there, too, and try to participate. You know, so if anyone's at any of the annual meetings or just, you know, want more information, you know, you can get my contact there, too. Awesome. We'll link to those in the description below, too. That way, if you want to get in contact with Dr. Kane in his office, you can do so there. You know, it's funny. I thought you were going to say that you've got like a MySpace handle still or something like that. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm old, but I, I don't know. I'm not very good with technology. I, I really don't take to social media, to be honest with you. I try to keep a low profile. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, Dr. Kane. I really appreciate your time and everything you shared with us today. This is amazing. Thank you. No, thanks for having me. appreciate the opportunity.